You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, editor-at-large at The Diplomat, broadcasting from Washington, D.C. And I just want to talk a little bit about the history of this podcast, because we've come a long way since uh, I started the show back in February 2014. In fact, the last episode uh, that we just did on Sino-Indian relations was episode 300. Uh, so it's really been a long ride, and you know, definitely want to thank all of our listeners who've who've stuck with us for the years. People who write in, suggest topics, guests. It's really great to get that feedback, and of course, thank you to everyone that's subscribed for a long time and reviewed the show. But I wanted to sort of begin this episode by just talking a little bit about uh, you know a new change for the podcast, which is that I am very happy today to introduce the new co-host for the show, uh, who will be joining me long term to continue uh, the Asia Geopolitics podcast. And without further ado, you probably know her. She's been on the show before. She's the managing editor of The Diplomat. Uh, you've read her. You, I'm sure you've read her tweets and opinions, but Katie Putz. Katie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you, you summed it up pretty well, read her tweets. Um, I am the managing editor of The Diplomat. I've been with The Diplomat since uh, later 2014. Um, and, and I managed edit some of the time, uh, I would like to say, but I, I uh, am mostly responsible for putting together our monthly magazine publication. Uh, and in addition to that, I cover Central Asia. That's the my area of expertise. Um, and I edit pretty much everything that comes through the website. So I'm very excited to uh, bring that experience to the audio. Absolutely. And uh, when Katie says she focuses on Central Asia, what she's leaving out is that she's one of among a handful of people in Washington, at least, uh, that can talk about the Central Asian region with the level of understanding and detail that Katie brings to the table. So Katie, really glad to have you on. Uh, of course, you know, we will be talking about, um, as we have for the last, I guess, almost eight years now on this podcast, we'll be we'll still be covering the full gamut of the Indo-Pacific region all the way from the Southern Pacific to Central Asia, to the Indian Ocean, to Northeast Asia, to Russia. It's all going to be still here. Um, but but Katie will be joining me regularly now. So I'm, I'm really happy for this new era uh, for the show. Um, but Katie, you know, you talked a little bit about the magazine, uh, which is now uh, on issue number 84, uh, which is pretty incredible. Uh, those issues come out monthly and um, very fittingly in November 2021, as world leaders are gathered in Scotland to discuss climate change issues. Uh, this episode is um, uh, this issue of the magazine is dedicated to climate issues more broadly. So um, do you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what they'll find in this month's issue of the magazine? Yeah, absolutely. So for November, um, we did something we don't always do, which is have the cover story and what we refer to as the the lead articles, which are the other larger pieces in the magazine that, that come in the top half of the issue, um, have them sort of revolve around the central theme of, of climate change. We didn't want to limit the way that we did that. So you'll notice there's a good variety of how to approach the issue of climate change and the way that climate change is really kind of woven in through politics and society and economics throughout the Asia Pacific. So the cover story focuses on Indian Pakistan and the Indus Waters Treaty and sort of puts forth the idea that given mismanagement on both sides, tensions on both sides and, and the impacts and rising demand on water, it's time to reevaluate the treaty. And we thought that was an interesting thread to follow. Um, the other major pieces look at things like how Pacific island states manage their fisheries um, and how North Korea is struggling with climate change and then how Southeast Asia is kind of 
figuring out the economics of renewable energy. Um, and, and so it's a, it's a good variety of, of topics uh, that really, I think, put into tangible, like, subjects that we can discuss easily the the effects of climate change as opposed to climate change being this like overarching big bad it's how does this impact the economies in southeast asia and how does it how does how do their economic um, positions influence how readily or how easily they can switch to renewable energies and that that hopefully will will inspire the great minds of our time to to think through solutions to some of these issues because uh the climate is changing so that's that's the reality and sort of um we wanted to to front that and then the rest of the issue um brings together really everything that you need to know about what's going on in asia uh right now so it's 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 a lot of work but it's a labor of love and so i hope everybody takes a look at the issue this month absolutely well uh there you go and for uh listeners who don't yet subscribe to the magazine you definitely should uh it is included with an all-access subscription to the diplomat where you get the website and the magazine all together the podcast of course is always free so uh, definitely uh follow up on 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 the excellent uh magazine uh for this month and for months to come um, but Katie, now let's turn, you know, let's switch gears a little bit and, and talk about Central Asia, which we uh, really haven't done an episode on this podcast, at least for a while. I think the last time you and I chatted, it was about Afghanistan, um, right before everything got um, really bad, obviously. That was an exercise in perfect timing on our end. <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, always, always good with the timing. Um, but I wanted to sort of talk to you about uh, something that happened recently and something that is about to happen later this month. Uh, so the thing that happened uh, that I think is interesting is is that Uzbekistan, which we've we've actually talked about Uzbekistan a fair bit on this podcast, given the interesting political trajectory of that country over the last five years, period of reform, new leadership, and so forth. But Uzbekistan just had a presidential election uh, where, you know, surprise, surprise, the incumbent, Shavkat Mirziyoyev, um, triumphed. Uh, so I'd love to sort of get your take on that first. And then we'll talk a little bit about Kyrgyzstan's upcoming parliamentary elections. Kyrgyzstan's gone through a bit of a rocky patch politically, so I'll be very curious for your take on what we should look for there. And then we'll close out actually by returning to Afghanistan, but talking a little bit more about what the former Soviet Central Asian states uh, are thinking about the current situation there with the Taliban in power, a terrible humanitarian catastrophe brewing, including uh, tremendous food insecurity uh, and an economic crisis. So uh, that's sort of the broader agenda here. But let's uh, you know focus on Uzbekistan first. So tell us a little bit about um, about the background of the Uzbek election. What was at stake and, and what should we make of the outcome here? So to, to not mince words with it, there wasn't a whole lot at stake. Uh, the election, which was traditionally scheduled for December, had been moved to October, which is a much more hospitable time to hold an election in Uzbekistan. Um, so it was on October 24th. The incumbent president, Shavkat Mirziyoyev, he won with 80% of the vote against four other candidates who all come from uh, officially registered parties. Uh, there, there really wasn't much of a contest and there wasn't much of a competition. Right. The election itself was very quiet. Uh, well, why is October a better time for an election than December? Um, so weather-wise, it's much more pleasant. And so Uzbekistan had been criticized in the past for essentially shoving its election into the darkest time of the year. Uh, I was in Uzbekistan for its parliamentary elections in December uh, in December 2019, and it was it was late December, like I, I flew back on Christmas Day, and that impacted the number of 
journalists who were covering it. Um, the international media attention was not very high. And so it, it was interestingly enough, the moving of the election was also branded as part of the reform program. You know, make, make it easier for people to come observe the election by not putting it right up against a major world holiday. Um, but I, I mean, I, I, I think they just did it for kind of PR reasons. It also was just Museum was going to win whether it was going to be in October or December. Um, so that like that, that was a, a reform that really was mm-hmm. not necessarily um, all that impactful. But the the election campaign itself, there wasn't a lot of there were there were no real debates. There was one official presidential debate a couple days before the election, except that it was done by proxies. So none of the candidates stood on a stage together their spokesman essentially stood on the stage and presented whatever it is that their their platforms were. There weren't a lot of new ideas. There was a little bit of of floating of of um, one of the can- one of the other candidates had suggested that uh, uh, migrant workers in Russia should pay taxes in Uzbekistan, um, and the president you know got to sweep in and say that is ridiculous. We should you know these people are working. Um, very hard. And obviously, we can't support them here. Um, and so the election itself, um, there were no new parties that were allowed to register. Uh, independent candidates are not allowed to contest the election. Um, I think my, um, I certainly believe this, and I think a lot of other analysts believe this, Mirzoyev would have won in a fair fight. But we, we don't actually know that because it wasn't really a fair fight. Right. Um, the There were two Two parties in particular that wanted to register for the election that were denied registration and their um, their leaders were essentially pressured out of uh, pursuing politics entirely. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we when we think then about um, the ramifications of Mirzoyev's victory, I guess in, in in sort of a more regional context, um, how how do you think, you know, Uzbekistan's neighbors are perceiving this? What are the implications more broadly uh, in the region, if at all? Or, or is the continuity somewhat welcome? Yeah, I mean, I, I think continuity is the thing. Um, certainly, the analytical community, even before this election, we kind of all knew that Mirzoyev was going to win. Interestingly enough, he he won by 80%. He won in uh, 2016 in his first election by 90%. So that this sort of drop, in my interpretation, um, was a a sort of slight, hey, there's a little bit of an opening. See, he didn't, he didn't you know, win with 99%. Um, but... I think the interpretation by the neighbors is, you know, all's well in Uzbekistan. Everything's stable. Museev has has sort of firm control over what's happening. Um, and the really, really big questions are what happens in 2026. So Uzbek presidents are elected to five-year terms. Technically, under the Constitution, they're permitted two terms. Um, Islam Karimov, the previous Uzbek president who died in 2016, always found a way around that little pesky constitutional restriction of two terms. Uh, he had an, a term extended once via referendum, and then the constitution was changed to alter the number of years of the term. And so the argument was, well, it's a new constitution, so he hasn't had any terms under this constitution. And then they changed the constitution again. And so it, I'm waiting to see what happens in 2026, and it, it will be quite interesting, um, but there isn't really... A political culture in Uzbekistan that can sustain an alternate candidate at this point. Mm-hmm. In so, terms of the neighbors, all's well. I think they'll also be wondering what happens in 2026. You know, does Mirzoyev alter the constitution like Karamov did uh, in order to stay in power? Do they 
push through a referendum where everybody gets to say how much they like Mirziyoyev. And Mirziyoyev is legitimately popular in Uzbekistan. Um, it, that doesn't mean he's universally popular. He certainly has his critics. Um, but it's not certain. And Central Asia does not have, we're in uncharted territory. And Kyrgyzstan will be, um, I think, key in the next part of this discussion. There's not a lot of precedent in Central Asia for what happens to a president who retires. Right. Um, you know, Uzbekistan was ruled by Islam Karimov from the moment of its independence up until his death. So there's no, you know, there's no 200 years of precedent of like gentle retirement for past presidents. Um, but in neighboring Kyrgyzstan, it all goes to shit. Um, can we curse on this podcast? I'm yeah, sorry. sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's let's talk a little bit about Kyrgyzstan then. So, you know, parliamentary elections are coming up. Kyrgyzstan has had a rocky um I don't even know how long it's been. I mean, two years, it seems like to me at this point, right? But depends on who you ask. Two years, 30 years, you know? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but so, you know, tell us a little bit about um, the stakes in the upcoming parliamentary elections and, uh, you know, what, um, what again, you know, regional observers are, are looking for in terms of potential geopolitical ripples. So I, I think everybody's kind of hoping that this one doesn't go like the last effort at a parliamentary election. Um, Kyrgyzstan held parliamentary elections in October 2020. It was shortly after that that the everything imploded. There were protests in response to the parliamentary elections, um, this perception that it had been rigged, and, and I agree with that perception. That sort of spiraled sideways into um, Sadr Japarov, who had been a pre a politician who had been in jail for a couple of years on an 11 year kidnapping sentence. Um, he was busted out of jail and within two weeks was interim president and the previous president was ousted. And then just things kept changing. They, Zhaparov was elected officially as president in January of 2021, followed by a referendum on the constitution that reoriented the Kyrgyz system. Kyrgyzstan had been sort of trying to work under a parliamentary democratic system since its last revolution in 2010. Uh, that is totally shelved now. They're back to a presidential-centric system. And so this parliamentary election is, on one hand, a rerun of what happened in October 2020, but is happening in a totally different universe and context and under a new constitution. So the parliament is going to shrink from 120 deputies to 90. The mm -hmm. parliament's powers are more limited than under the previous government. Um, but, uh, you know, there's still, there are benefits to being a parliamentarian, even if it's not doing the job of running a government, uh, there's access to government and, and government right. power and all the possible rents. Are uh, we, uh, are we expecting any kind of, um, you know, protests or mass, um, mass, uh, unrest around these elections or. I'm, I'm not really, I, I assume there will be some kind of protests, um, but there's just a lot, it's just a lot of confusion, really. The mm -hmm. the constitutional changes have already been put through. So that's that's a done deal. Mm -hmm. There are 21 parties contesting this election. Kyrgyzstan has a very active political arena, but not a very form formalized one. Uh, Kyrgyz parties sort of merge and change. Uh, there's, a, there's a phrase in the country that translates to changing shoes in reference to politicians that jump from party to party. Uh, mm -hmm. They just change their shoes and they're in a different party now. And so it, I, you know, the, the parties are unfamiliar to a lot of people because they didn't exist before a couple right. months ago. Um, I'm not expecting a lot of unrest. I'm going to heavily caveat that with, you never really know what's going to happen in Kyrgyzstan. Sure. Um, but, but there isn't, there was some recent survey work uh, done by IRI on, on Kyrgyzstan and 
one of my favorite questions that they always ask is name politicians that you trust. Um, and that is always an interesting barometer because it can shift super rapidly, but it does tell you something. And as of uh, September, Japarak was the most trusted politician in the country. So I don't really see the kind of overthrow that happened in October 2020, because before that, the sitting president at the time, uh, Soren Bajinbekov, he was not even in like the top five of trusted politicians when they had asked that question. So mm-hmm. I don't really see there being a lot of upset right now, but we are headed into what's looking like it's going to be a pretty bad winter. Um, Kyrgyzstan already struggles with heating and electricity in the winter time, And so some kind of domestic crisis has the potential to set up um, unrest in the spring, for example. Mm-hmm. I don't, it, these things are hard to predict, but those are the kind of conditions that precipitated uh, the 2005 revolution, which was in the springtime, the 2010 revolution, which was in the springtime, and then um, the events that led to former President Atambayev being jailed uh, also included a winter energy crisis. So there's there's a, a couple of, of threads to be watching. I'm not expecting immediate sort of total unrest. I think I think the Kyrgyz are also very exhausted uh, after <laughs> after the last year. Um, okay. Um, so, you know, uh, shifting gears now to, I guess, the final component um, of, of our chat today. Um, and, you know, there's there's so much to talk about uh, with regards to Afghanistan. You know, I am I am conscious of the fact that uh, we haven't done a full scale episode on Afghanistan since uh, our chat in August, uh, when, of course, the Taliban were still not in power and uh, things were quite different. Uh, so there is a lot mm-hmm. to talk about. But, you know, just kind of keeping on theme and, and talking a little bit about um, about the Central Asian region. So we had uh, a meeting last week uh, in Iran, um, including the foreign ministers of um, many Central Asian states, Pakistan, China, Russia, to um, discuss basically the future of Afghanistan. And obviously there's a huge amount of concern in the region, uh, uh, not only because of the concern of refugee outflows, humanitarian crisis and economic crisis, mm-hmm. Uh, in Afghanistan under uh, um, under under the Taliban rule right now, but uh, Katie, when it comes to sort of the geopolitical ramifications of of the Taliban now sort of having fully taken over, um, what have you sort of seen from the Central Asian states? What are their primary concerns here? Uh, so the the primary concerns certainly of the so there are three neighbor there are three Central Asian states that neighbors um, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. Um, and then there is a split among those three about their approach toward the Taliban. Tajikistan is the most antagonistic, I would say. They have not, for example, had meetings with the Taliban, or at least have not advertised having direct t- meetings with the Taliban, whereas Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, um, even prior to the Taliban's takeover in mid-August, had hosted Taliban delegations and had been uh, forging some kind of operational ties uh, so that they can talk to each other. The the Central Asian state's main concerns are security. Um, uh, you know, when the Taliban was an insurgent movement, they had those same talks with the Afghan government of Ashraf Ghani, for example, but the concern was the Taliban as the, as the threat or the Islamic State as the threat. I think they're all concerned about the Islamic State in Afghanistan as, as a potential threat in the region. Um, and then the, certainly the, the economic repercussions, mm-hmm. um, which includes refugee flows, uh 
none of these states are particularly well known for being very welcoming of refugees. Uzbekistan is not even a member of the the relevant uh, UN conventions uh, related to refugees. So as far as Uzbekistan is concerned, there are no refugees in Uzbekistan. They don't exist. Um, But the, yeah, the security and the economic and the the, the human impact is definitely of, of high concern for the Central Asian states. Does Russia have any sort of particular... Uh, so, I mean, Russia is obviously concerned about... Um, Russia doesn't border Afghanistan, but Russia... I mean, Central Asia is the buffer between Russia and Afghanistan in many ways. So when it comes to Russian thinking on this uh, and, and sort of Russian relations with Central Asian states, uh, is Moscow sort of leaning on these states to sort of make sure that... You know, they're um, taking appropriate care to ensure that insurgent groups, terrorist groups like the Islamic State aren't sort of making their way through Central Asia to Russia's periphery. Yeah, I mean, R- Russia definitely. I, I think the interesting thing about this recent Iran meeting is that it was it was advertised as the second meeting of Afghanistan's neighbors. The first meeting uh, didn't include Russia and Russia is in- included in this one. And I think will be included in, in future iterations of, of this format. Russia wants to be in the room. Uh, Russian uh, uh, Russian international organizations like the SCO, they've they've run um, counterterrorism exercises in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, and so Russia wants to be present for these discussions for the exact reasons that you named. They're, they still Central Asia in the sort of Russian political mind is just a buffer. It's it's like the it's the it's the black line on a border as opposed to like a yep. bunch of sovereign countries sometimes, um, but. Russia is heavily involved and they're definitely concerned. I don't know how hard they're leaning necessarily because I, I think Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, for example, have their own interests and those happen to align with, with Russian interests. And even Tajikistan, which is not taking the same sort of diplomatic approach, remains in those discussions with Russia and the other Central Asian states. So while their approaches are a little bit different, they still, um, I think, on the back end are pretty tied together. Um, and and I, I think we're going to continue to see Russian involvement in that. I think one of one of the sort of quirks that I find most interesting and presents a little bit of a, a hurdle for Russia and some of these other countries, I, I think, is Russia continues to list the Taliban as a banned extremist group. So every time that there's a meeting between Russian officials and Taliban delegations, Russian media stories, Russian news stories about it sort of reference the Taliban and then in parentheses say a banned extremist group. And so it's it, it sort of is a very like present contradiction that, yeah. they, you know, for, forestalls this question of recognition, because I think that's what everybody's thinking about next is are any of these countries that are sort of trying to deal with the Taliban as if it were a normal government? None of them are making moves to recognize the Taliban government either. Nobody wants to go first. Right. I mean, yeah. And, you know, it's not just the Central Asian countries in Russia that are that are dealing with that. I think, um, you know, pretty much every country that had good relations or close relations yeah, with mean, the Afghan government. Do you, do you see do you see like China or, or India yeah. or really anybody kind of rushing to be first to recognize or Pakistan even like yeah, to be, recognize I mean, the Taliban? They haven't. It'll be interesting to see not what <laughs> what actually happens. Uh, event. I mean, you know, time has a way of making these sorts of things that seem very abnormal now appear more normal. And so mm-hmm. once once the first countries begin to recognize the government, uh, inevitably, which will have to happen if if Afghanistan is going to be anything but a sort of, uh, you know, economic catastrophe under the Taliban, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that sort of reverberates across the region, uh, yeah. across the region. Um, well, Katie, I think 
Um, we'll end it there today. Um, but certainly I think this will be the first of many discussions on this podcast. So, um, listeners, if you don't yet follow Katie on social media, uh, please do so. I highly recommend her Twitter feed, uh, which is at lady putts. Uh, you can follow her there. Um, and now you can send both me and Katie ideas and, and suggestions for uh, guests. We will still be having guests on the show occasionally. Um, and, you know, we're very happy to continue receiving ideas on future topics. Uh, there's a lot on the agenda uh, in, in the Asia Pacific, as, as always. Uh, so we will be uh, doing our best to cover the gamut. But Katie, it's great to have you on board and uh, looking forward to our future discussions here. I'm so excited to join, um, and I, I promise I can talk about more than just Central Asia, though I will always talk about Central Asia. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time. For listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast and you'd like to keep up with future episodes, make sure you subscribe. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you really get your shows, we're there. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.